friends. Welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and just a gift to have you hanging out here and giving some of your time to process all of the things that we process on here. And uh, welcome back. I know we launched uh, a new podcast last week, and it had been several months, but I did no intro. I mean, a part of the deal was that like I just had not had the capacity to be able to put these together, but I've got several of them that I've recorded and I wanted to get out and I was like, forget like just doing this little, um, like two minutes on the front end just felt a bit too much for me. So I was like, forget that. I'm just going to get something out so I can start getting them out. So, uh, we've got several that we're going to hear from over the next several weeks. And a part of what was going on for me over the last several months is that I've been reorienting some of my work and have been having to give a bit of time and energy in that direction. And I will talk more about some of that later on here, but uh, maybe like the, uh, the short version of it here is that one of the things I'm finding myself spending more and more time doing is serving as an executive coach. And I uh, am working with leaders and teams who value health and wholeness as a part of their life and leadership. And so I continue to work with pastors, but beyond that, I now have been working with several CEOs and with several executive teams. And I've been doing more and more in that direction. And so, you know, if you're somebody who you lead a team, you're a part of a team, you're in some sort of leadership, and you just want you like you care about who you are and how you show up you recognize that the way that you contribute to the world and your vocation and your work actually flows out of who you are and that like you want to take some whether it's next steps in your leadership you want to show up in healthier ways you've got some things that are sort of like keeping you from like you know that you have more to give and contribute there's frustrations that have gotten in your way obstacles whatever those sorts of things are uh like reach out and we can have a chat and see if i could be helpful for you it's been uh just a gift and an honor to be invited into some of these spaces with uh, executive teams and with ceos and some other leaders so would love to would love to get to chat with you but um today Today we get to have my friend uh, Casey Tigret on, who has a new book coming out, and I think, actually, I'm releasing this on the day that the book comes out called "The Gift of Restlessness," and we're going to talk about his book, what a gift it is, um, and I think you are just going to love and appreciate Casey. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my conversation with Casey Tigret. Well, friends, I'm glad to get to introduce you to my friend Casey Tigret here, who is coming to us from the great Chicagoland area today. And uh, Casey, you and I first met, I don't remember, I was trying to remember what year it was, I don't know, but I met you at the North American Christian Convention, which no longer exists anymore. And did you... Or has morphed. And it has morphed, but man, I mean, you could just imagine what a convention of Christians might look like, and that is exactly (laughs) what it was. Uh, For those who are not in the know of what would be called the Brotherhood of Churches, which is what I was raised in, 
um, that this was this like convention of the coming together, not only of like pastors and leaders, but like back in the day, it was like families would take road trips. They would plan their summer vacation around this. And it would be like this convergence of people from churches all over the country that were a part of this non-denominational Christian church uh, sort of movement. And they would all sort of like come together for a week of like, I don't know, Bible teaching and Bible quiz like competitions. And what well, I never went. Well, no, I went to one growing up. That was it. But my wife, she was a part of Bible Bowl. Oh. So she competed there. So she was, the she was a real Christian. She was a real Christian. I was not, for which her parents have never forgiven. <laughs> well, it, um, it, I would think back in the day before podcasts, before you know, large-scale media, that was also, this movement preaching has been such a big deal. And that was the only place you could really see people outside of your own preacher. And you'd heard rumors about these legendary preachers. And you just you just didn't get to see them. Uh, unless you went to the North American. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I saw you or I met you at, I don't know if it was the last one that I went to or one of the last ones I went to where I got talked into going. I had sworn off ever going again. And I'm with this gathering of pastors who helped put it together. And the pitch they gave me was they said, Mike, you don't need the North American Christian Convention, but the North American Christian Convention needs you. <laughs> And so I was no like, all pressure. right, I'll show up. <laughs> so I show up to it and it didn't need me at all. Nobody cared that I was there. And, um, but there is this like renegade small group of folks who are about my age who didn't sit in any of the sessions and would just like hang out together. And you were a part of that group. So that's where I got to find you. And for me, uh, it was a gift because I was in this time where like I was leading this church, but I didn't know where I fit in the church world. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out like, who are my people? Where's my place? And, but I would meet folks along the way. And you were one of those people that I would feel this like resonance with and kinship with, and just appreciated the way that you were processing and thinking about things. So I don't know if I've ever told you, like you were just a really helpful voice for me at a time where like, I was like, I don't know, like, what yeah where do where do i fit in the church world but there are folks like casey so i feel like there's some sort of space for me yeah gosh thanks that's um that belonging question is really important and i feel like that's the first thing we lose and that's that's mm. where like the threads start to come apart so i'm glad we were able to give you a little tether me and some of the other renegades mm. that were part of that group for sure that was a group effort <laughs> Yeah, well, um, we are chatting today. I mean, that's a good transition into the book that you have written that is releasing soon, coming out on April 25th, called The Gift of Restlessness. And um, as soon as I saw you post what the title of the book was, that I knew, like, oh, we've got to chat because this feels like up my alley. And knowing you, I knew it would be thoughtful and generative and um, I got to tell you, man, um, I was mentioning this before we started recording, but like it, it was so good. It was so significant for me. I found myself tearing up at times with just like resonance mm -hmm. with some of the things that you were writing. And um, it was one of those books, like I read it pretty quick to prep for our conversation. Like I probably read it in a couple of sittings and realized when I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, there's so much in here that I need to like re-engage and even the practices that you offer throughout it that I want to re-engage. 
that I'll genuinely go through it again, uh, but slower to like read it for me and from my own sort of experience. So um, all that to sort of like set us up to talk about your book. And I haven't even introduced you yet other than to say you're a renegade. So so I don't I so I don't have to read your bio or what like you want to share with folks a little bit about who you are and then we'll get into your book. Sure. Yeah, besides being a renegade, I uh I am a pastor and spiritual director. I've been in some kind of church work since probably 1996. Uh, I grew up in the Nazarene tradition, the Church of the Nazarene, hmm. and uh, have made my way through several different church streams over the years, just different thinking and different theology. But when I was in college, I, I got somewhat ambushed by some spiritual giants, people like Henry Nouwen and Thomas Merton, um, some mystics, mostly Catholic. Uh, and they painted this picture of a broader and more generous God and a broader and more generous faith than I was used to. And that sort of got me walking down the road of conversations around spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines. Uh, and so that was always this sort of, it was the, the background song in my head for most of the things that I did. Um, so even in pastoral ministry, a lot of what I was doing in church work was trying to help people become like become who they were supposed to be. And then as I was learning about things like spiritual stages and growth and maturity and attachment and detachment, some of these other principles, I realized that you know faith was built to change. So how do I how do I help people do that? And that led me to become a spiritual director. Uh, so I do that. Personally, just uh, in my own practice, but I also work with a company called Soul Care, and we do that for leaders of churches or or parachurches or non-for-profits and faith-forward people who work in marketplace roles. Um, just trying to help people lead from a place of soul health and soul flourishing uh, to not burn out, to keep the most important thing about them. So, um, yeah, I live in Chicagoland, have for a long, long time, 14, 15 years. Um, my wife and I have been married for, it'll be 23 years in August. And we have a 16 year old daughter and I like long walks on the beach, getting caught in the rain. And I think that's about it. Yeah. Should, I should yeah. cover it. Yeah. Long walks on the beach. <laughs> uh, is that like the, um, the Great Lakes beach or like real beaches? <laughs> it's, it's the great, yeah. It's the Michigan beaches, which you know, in the summer it feels similar, but it's not the same as as where you are in the on the best coast. So I I don't know what else to do with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I love uh, I love the theme of restlessness and the idea of like one of the things you said early on in the book was that you feel like it's this constant thing showing up for you. I, I don't remember how you said it that it's like every six months or so yeah. that you kind of have this restlessness, which like that was one of the things that drew me in immediately because I was like, I feel like that's true of me, that there's this uh, sort of like dissatisfaction with something that like resurfaces uh, on a fairly regular basis. And I feel like a part of my own work of formation has been trying to like pay attention to that, lean into that, figure out what to do with that. One of the thoughts that I had when I first read that and um, and feel free to like, yeah, go where you want to go if you want to define restlessness a little bit. I know you do that in the book, if that's helpful. But I was kind of curious, do you feel like, is that a, I'm a, I identify as an Enneagram 3, mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I don't remember where you identify. I don't know if that's something that is enigmatic to somebody who is has a certain sort of disposition towards life, or is that like is your experience like that's just a normal cycle that a lot of us in human condition experience? I think it's a normal cycle. I think when you look at things like Enneagram, it 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 shows you how we express it. So I identify as a four. Um, so a lot of my restlessness I try to express in either creative ways or in trying to be unique. Uh, my daughter also probably is in that Enneagram four space, which, you know, that's a, that's a challenge. There's, you know, the Enneagram is built to show you your shadow side. So confronting the fact that you need to be original, you need to be unique, that urge is a, a certain kind of restlessness. And I, I feel like that's part of it. I feel like part of just being a human in the U.S., because that's my only cultural um, context, is just filled with with either artificial or very real restlessness. Either artificial restlessness that says the stuff you have isn't good enough. And once you accept that, then you realize, I got to have new stuff, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get to that. But there's also the the very real Restlessness of political discourse, uh, race and gender discourse, um, from a church standpoint, just the the state of of faith in America. Uh, there's this sense that we can't. So I, when I define restlessness, I say that it's this this spot where we are in this irritated, unsettled season where we cannot go backwards. We have no idea what what the future or what forward looks like. So we're just sort of stuck in the present tense. And that's where restlessness really digs in. And so like bartenders say, you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I would say you can't go back to the way things used to be, but you have no idea what the future looks like. And so we're just sort of grounded in that present moment where we're, we feel like everything needs to change, but we don't know how. We just know we can't go back. And so that's... That's really the moment where uh, we confront our restlessness, the restlessness of others. But I do, I do, Mike. I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a pretty common thing. I've not met any any person I would say who I would look at and go, well, that person's never obviously dealt with. They've not, they've never dealt with this. I think any person that I've walked with in spiritual direction or just friendships, like they all have, they all have that irritated, unsettled feeling about something. Yeah, I, you know, so I was kind of curious what like spurred you on towards creating this where I remember I read somewhere in the book or maybe it was even in the acknowledgments where you said that it had been sitting for years as a document on your computer that you then reengaged and um like I can get the um you talk a bit about the pandemic and things of that and how it sort of plays into this and I can get sort of that season spurring it on but you were obviously paying attention to this before then uh, the pandemic hit before uh, like what was sort of stirring in you that you were seeing like there's something to this restlessness to pay attention to. Yeah, I've long had a just a really deep curiosity for the places where faith intersects or human life intersects with faith. And all the aspects of it. And I just, I love people who are learning about what it means to be human because I feel like to be human is to be spiritual. Um, you know, taking the classic narratives of faith where 
humanity was created by the divine and then breathed into, was inspired, was given spirit. So we're all just like spirit in dirt, I guess. And so anything we can know about the dirt necessarily impacts what we know about spirit. So the other two books that I've written, one about curiosity and one about memory, those are all just me being interested in, hey, where do these two things meet? With this book, uh, restlessness was way more personal. Uh, I felt like I've carried this in me ever since I was in growing. I feel like I inherited it from my family. And it's done, you know, as I've done the work of therapy and spiritual direction, uh, I've noticed how it's affected relationships, like my commitment to people, um, my commitment to jobs, uh, this feeling of like, I'm really passionate about something. And then I start doing it. And then about four or five weeks later, I'm like, uh, let's do something else. What is that? Am I just not committing well? Or is it this sense of, hey, something needs to change? I'd like to go back to when this was brand new and shiny. And so I started working on this idea uh, probably in 2018 or so and put together a book. And this is so this is also a little tan tangent into writing. Books are weird. Great. Books are just weird things. Yeah, I sat in my basement and I put all this stuff on a page and now it's like out there and you're reading it and it's causing you to feel things. I'm like it, how does that that still just just boggles my mind, but um publishing is even stranger. So I put together this this proposal and we uh, I have a friend who is helps me talk to publishers and um, he took it around and nobody wanted to do anything with it. And I still like the idea. So I'm like, I'll just put this away for a while. And then the pandemic happened. And what was interesting is how all, everybody's human story changed. Um, and it was simultaneously one of the most ubiquitous things, like one of the most widespread things. All of us have a pandemic story. Or we do like date things from, well, that was pre-2020. Uh, but at the mm -hmm. same time, not only do we all have this, this sort of pandemic story, but it changes, it changes how we see things that were happening anyway. So there are a lot of things in my life that would have happened anyway, but the fact that they happened during a time of illness and lockdown um, and crisis and instability and high stress and things like that. So Zod, during the writing of the book, they were like, we don't want to make this into a pandemic book. And I said, gosh, anything that's written after 2020 is going to have to be, if it's nonfiction, or even if it's fiction, it's going to have to somehow deal with that. And so I came back around to the original proposal and put some new stories in, um, shifted some viewpoints. I mean, it changed the whole way that I looked at it because uh, I saw myself differently. And so the book really became, this is way more reflective. It's way more personal than anything I've written mm. before just because of that. Um, I felt like there was, I needed to love, <laughs> I needed to love the world by loving this part of myself. And it just so happened I had the opportunity to do that in public, which is so weird, but I think it's so good as well. Because when you see somebody that you can go, oh yeah, oh that, that's me too. Uh, from a faith perspective, that's me too. From a dad perspective, that's me too. From a you know, white American perspective, that's me too. That's what I'm, so when you can see that, uh, there's, a, there's a joy and a hope there. So that's why I, I wanted to see this through 
Um, and it wasn't easy, but, um, but I kind of owed it to people who would see that story or hear something about their restlessness just got normalized. Like, let's just say this, let's say it's true. Let's just all get to the point of accepting that it's a reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you quote, um, I don't know how to say her name, Joan Chittister? I think that's right. Is that? Yeah. Sure? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. That's what, yeah. Um, Joan, if you're listening, uh, just you... write in and tell us how to pronounce that. <laughs> well, yeah, and Joan, thank you for writing this, that dissatisfaction becomes a spiritual director of our souls. Without the dissatisfaction of the soul, how would we ever find our way to more? So like one of the lenses that I read your book through and tell me if I'm if I'm in a in a the right kind of ballpark or trajectory in this like as I'm working with some churches or individuals whose faith is growing changing or trying to figure out how do we create space for people's faith to grow and change and expand one of the things I've often shared um, with communities is there needs to be some point of stability that allows for flexibility in other areas and it felt to me like one of the things that you're doing in this book was saying like, there's this dissatisfaction that wants some sort of flexibility to grow and expand and change in the way we understand our faith, the way we understand our lives. And the point of stability, then you sort of take the Lord's prayer and use it as a, as a sort of like catalyst uh, for some categories of what it looks like as something that keeps us sort of rooted and stable in order to allow for that that flexibility to happen. Is that a fair fair way of thinking about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. The Lord's Prayer to me is, if we talk about restlessness as one of the most common human experiences, well, something we all share, I feel like the Lord's Prayer or the Jesus Prayer or the Our Father, if you if you were to take each line and say, what's the question behind that? What is what is Jesus teaching as an answer. How is this an answer to that? They they're the most human questions we could ask. You know, things mm. like purpose, belonging, provision, is there enough? Can the world be mended? Will I be safe? Can I be rescued? Those are like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of questions. Those are the root, really deeply rooted questions. And uh, it it does anchor us and it gives us a way to talk about it rather than just this big spread out territory of like restlessness. It's this big picture. Okay, so let's let's take that. That's what I've always loved about about writing and about anything that I've been able to do is I really want to take something that's a common concept, but kind of not easy to define, and bring it down to where we can talk practically about it. And you know, Joan talking about dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is one of those big terms, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's something that gets us gets us moving. We don't want to. None of us, I mean, I'm not saying any of us chase it down. Dissatisfaction is going to come. It's just, it's just part of who we are. So having the space for that and the permission for that to say, yeah, yeah, faith, life, you're going to feel seasons of this like unsettled, dissatisfied place. Let it be your teacher. Let it guide you Mm. because without that, you're, you may never find your way to that that next thing that you've always wanted, but you thought it was going to come in the same container. That's what I love about people like Richard Rohr talking about the stages of faith. And he says, every stage transition has something to do with pain. 
we normally don't move until we get moved or until something of ours is moved. Um, so I, I love that. And I think that's where the Lord's Prayer helps us because it, it pokes those areas of satisfaction and dissatisfaction and says, do you, do you think you have enough? And what is that? How would you even define enough as an American, as a parent, as a spouse? How would you define that? So that's, that's one of the things that I loved about that being kind of an anchoring point of the book. So let's, let's talk about some really human questions here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciated even the way that you approached them, um, especially some of the lines felt the way that you engaged it, like uh, maybe a less obvious way to engage it in a way that like moved it into some new and more helpful directions. Or so I think of like the, the first line that you take there, our father. And I have often when people will preach through, say, the Lord's Prayer, that um, that that line gets preached around God is parenting you. Um, God is safe and trustworthy, God is fathering you, things like that. And then you took it in this direction that maybe had some to do with that, but it was also like a, a piece of it was about like, what are the metaphors that we're using for God um, that we're holding on to? What do we need to do with those metaphors? Yeah, um, you move into attachment theory around it. Like there's so many interesting moves that you did with that. Um I mean, I don't want to. I don't want us to spend our time like covering your whole book because I do think folks should read it. But I wonder if we could camp out in a few places, and I wonder if you'd mind like camping out here for a minute around like what we do with this idea that like the way that we refer to God is some sort of container to make sense of something that we can't fully grasp and make sense of, and but we have all been given those sorts of images that we do something with. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah. Hmm. This is, I mean, part of the reason I write on this is because I feel like it's there and it's important, but also part of it is just my own heartbreak at watching people who, if, if God, if this concept of God is what we think it is, which is all knowing, all powerful, all creating, and, you know, by nature beyond us. And then we take a word or a concept and we say, this is God. And we don't ever put a little asterisk at the end and say, actually, this is how we see God. There's a potential for when I see people who get locked into a metaphor, they stop saying, this is, this is what God is like. And then they say, this is all God can be. That's good. And so I see... I used to work with students and I would see t teenage girls who had their fathers were disobedient, not disobedient. They were uh, abusive and uh, dismissive. And then they would come to church and say, our father. And they'd be like, no, nope, nope, sorry. Like y you lost me there. And and we can do, I mean, we can sing Chris Tomlin and say, "Go, God's a good, good father. I understand that. But the box has been built and so there's only so many places you can go if God is father, or even if God, you know, if our concept of God is that God is a he, um, mm -hmm. that's, that's building a container for something that is, that transcends any sort of gender, but it does put some, some stipulations and some boundaries on there. And so there's a point in our life where that metaphor is really good. 
God as warrior, God as um, father even. I mean, that can be a very nurturing and powerful thing. But there also has to become a point in time where we say yes, and that's not all. So I look at how many names of God there are in the Hebrew tradition. Like they, it seems like the the Hebrew tradition got all this before all of us went and mucked it up. Like th- there there are so many different ways, so many different metaphors, so many different images. And so early on, you can attach to one of those, but more than likely, like I mentioned earlier, some kind of pain is going to show up and is going to dislodge you from that image, from that metaphor. Um, and then you're going to either say, well, I can't have faith because this is the content of my faith. If God is not father, then how, how can I be faithful to God? Or, or even to the point of saying, well, if God is not a he, but the Bible says God is a he, it doesn't say that, but God, my Bible says God is a he. So how can I trust the Bible? And so people tend to find their way to that Robert Frost. There were two roads in a woods that divided and a lot of times they think the road less traveled is the one that is the same thing they've always believed. And in truth, sometimes it's the other one where you're able to say, yeah, I don't, I can't call God father. I call God parent. Maybe God is mother is a better way of looking at it. Or God is, for me, I've begun using the term the divine. I, I just feel like that's a bigger container. Um, and one, and mm. I might leave that behind at some point. Um, I interchange them still because the G-O-D word still has a, has a resonance for me. But, but those, those images are born for us to build an attachment to faith, to community, to the divine. And then, but they're all, we're all going to detach from them at one point or another until the moment comes for us to make new attachments uh, to the concept of the divine, to God as uh, the cosmic one or the unity. And so, there's some of that that sounds like, oh my gosh, you're surrendering the faith. I'm surrendering a kind of faith, I think, a type of it, but not the whole big F version of it. So that's that causes two different kinds of restlessness. One among the people who are trying to pursue that, and another amongst the people who are like, we can't, you know, the cat's out of the bag. People know that God is not a guy. So we can't go back to that. But where do we go from here and how do we preserve this form of faith? So um, I don't actually know if that answered anything that you asked me. No, this is great. I, I didn't even really ask you a question. Oh, okay, good. Um, which I appreciate. So I can't fail I, to answer what you didn't ask. No, no, no. Yes. I appreciate my favorite folks that are on here is that I can just say something and you're so <laughs> like good at what you do that you like, you can talk about a thing for a while and, um, and I can look like a good host cause you've got good things to say, but all I really did was like ramble on for a minute and then you're like, well, I'm going to talk about like this and I'll, my f- I'll do Yeah, that. my favorite metaphor for it too, Mike, is just to say that the telescope is not the stars. You know, all of these things are to help us see something that's beyond our own vision. And I want to, I'd love to fall in love with that again. Huh. You know, just that I mean, thing beyond us. I love that. I love the way you're talking about this. I love... I underlined that part of your book that the telescope is not the stars. Like that was a really resonant metaphor for me. What I think is interesting and I'm maybe difficult and I'm kind of curious is those of us who have had to 
live out our faith in a public sphere as professional Christians who had this, like you talk in your book about like, you get this calling that's supposed to be this higher calling. That's what, and you end up, you're on stage and you're talking about faith and you're, and you're, and it can't help but to be through the lens of your own experience and your, so it can't help but to be informed by your own sort of faith or then you're writing on it or in some sort of way, you've got a public platform that is expressing your own sort of personal faith. And then what you have expressed at one time doesn't fit who you are and who you're becoming anymore, but it's hard sometimes for people to follow along with you on that. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult for people to make sense of that or to know it. So sometimes people will discount you or sometimes people will say like, what happened to you? Like you used to be here and like what happened to you? You're following whatever sort of like, thing is the thing of the day to say that you're following. I'm really kind of curious for you because you talk about this stuff. It feels like somewhat naturally in the way that we're having this conversation Mm -hmm. here. I'm curious like how you've been able to do that sort of a journey in a sphere where you have some level of your faith being really public for folks. Well, the times it's been confronted, I I don't think it's been, it hasn't been easy. Uh, Easy in the sense of, I guess there's two ways for it to be easy. There's easy in the sense of it makes me feel like we're okay. And there's easy in the sense of, does it make sense to you? Uh, Rarely does it make sense to the other person, just as much as it wouldn't have made sense to me had I been in their shoes talking to someone who was in mine. So I really feel like respecting that idea uh, that we are evolving spiritual beings and that we're constantly changing. And that change means that things are going to shift and that some people that we were in community with are not going to be able to follow because they're not just not ready for that yet. Or And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think part of the problem is when you insert this into a culture uh, that doesn't know how to be civil or how to bear one another's burdens, that yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. really, really difficult because it's no longer you're, uh, you're evolving or you're changing. It's that you're wrong. And what happens if you take this from me? Like, what, and, and there is that little part of people who will go, I think that too, but I could go where you've gone because I, I don't want to do that. But especially when you're in public, because even... Even public Christian is kind of a container. If you think about it, it's one that we attach to in a way. It's either we attach to it because it pays the bills or we attach to it because it, it and I'm saying all of this in a, in a generous sense, it fills some part of us that we've been given an ability to speak or to lead or to write or create. and It's being recognized. Um, so there's part of that that fills a container And then at some point, detaching from that idea of God means that also we have to detach from this thing that is a container that used to fill us up. So it's actually for for those roles, it becomes even more difficult because not, you know, somebody who works at a, is a president of a bank who goes through a faith crisis, it doesn't change their job. This is, this is a dual, two things happening at once. And so I think that really makes it difficult because there's also the the 
common sense impact. Like, why would you, why would you change the way you believe about that? And now you've lost your job and you've been working all your life to be in this position. And anybody who's worked all their life to be in that position also has come face to face with the fact that it might not be what you thought it was going to be. So there's some restlessness around that too, that the person who's in that public spot is saying, I can't go back. I can't go back to to speaking publicly like that's the position that I take or that's the metaphor for God that I want to use. But I don't know how to go forward because all all the people, anybody I talk to who's had a faith crisis, who's moved on some sort of theological thing, whether it's hell or uh, gender and sexuality, they made up their mind about what they believed a long time ago. The reason they hadn't changed is because of the people that they would lose. It wasn't the theology, yes, it was the relationships that, that held that back. And so losing those relationships is sort of the last tether. Um, I will say as a caveat, as a person who has the the spiritual formation stuff attached to my name, for whatever reason, people feel a lot less uh, shocked when, <laughs> when I do that kind of stuff where I'm like, yeah, I feel like I've moved on this. They're like, oh, that makes sense. Because you're the like live on the mountain, stroke your beard kind of guy. So there is that's like you're already a mystic. You're into like the woo-woo. That's right. You're into crystals and meditation and yoga and whatever. And I tell them, no, yoga is so that I can get out of bed in the morning. That has nothing to do with spirituality. It has everything to do with my joints. Uh, but I think that also is a little bit, if you're already a person who's living in this sort of flow, that change that happens, that public change that happens, um, is a little easier, but I won't sit here and say that isn't costly. Um, every every transition, every change is costly, uh, but every change is also beautiful. You know, every crucifixion yeah. is resurrection. It's just the way the story mm. goes. It's a good. Um, I mean, it's a good segue for us to chat about something else that you spend some time on in your book of belonging. And of like finding rootedness in belonging and what that sort of looks like. And I was thinking of, you mentioned at some point, the idea of like, you come to a point where the things that were shaping you before are no longer what can shape you. And that you're kind of like, well, what's shaping me now? And a part of that is also like, who's shaping me? Mm -hmm. And who, if those spaces of belonging, I don't belong in anymore because either like they don't have the space for me, they don't have the capacity to like hold me there. Or maybe there's some reason where like I can't be in that space anymore for my own sake. Um, for whatever reason, like you've sort of lost that that space of belonging. Do you mind talking a little bit about what does it look like when you're even like feeling a little bit in between? Like where do I fit and where do I belong? What what roots you in belonging? This is something I've been thinking about even beyond the book just with some of the research and statistics that are out there about friendships in middle age and beyond, um, especially for men, how few men say they have deep, close friendships. And I don't, I, I don't recall the stat, the stats for women, but I don't think it's far behind. I think we're in a bit of a friendship, um, not, I don't know, a friendship vacuum. I don't know, even know if that's the best word, but there, there is a, a gap in relationships. And I think that has an impact 
I talk in the book about two different kinds of belonging. There's the there's the lowercase belonging, which is like the situational connections to God, self, and others. So it's the connection I have with God in my early years. It's the connection I have with others because I'm a parent. Our kids play soccer together. There's a connection I have with myself as an able-bodied 21-year-old who can eat Taco Bell after midnight and be totally fine. Um, oh, gosh. Those were the th- how about that, right? I think of that often. <laughs> Wish I had pictures of those times. Um, so there's that lowercase belonging. And then there's this uppercase belonging that is from the creation of the world. There is this spark within each one of us that roots us and connects us to the divine, that connects us to the divine in other people, and that connects us to the goodness and the, what he, in Hebrew, it's tov meo, the very good or very exceptionalness mm-hmm. of ourselves. The capital B doesn't change. So it's this, it's flinty, it's, it's gritty, it doesn't, it doesn't get swayed by circumstances. Um, but it, the other ones, the lowercase does because life changes because I'm no longer 21 and I can't eat Taco Bell at all, uh, because our friendships fade, our kids graduate, our roles change. We get fired, we get hired, we get moved on, or, uh, our marriage moves from the honeymoon stage to the, you know, the early conflict stage to that deeper, softer, more substantial stage where, People look at us in restaurants and go, they don't talk to each other. And in our heads, we're like, we don't really have to. We know what we know what each other is thinking uh, and we can feel it. So I, I think that aspect of belonging is understanding how do we express the capital B belonging, this belonging that never changes in the situations and circumstances that we're in. And that mm. becomes that becomes the real, the real challenge in an isolated kind of culture. And that's kind of what we saw during, I hate to come back to it and make this the pandemic podcast, but that's kind of what we saw during the pandemic was when you took away our ability to be connected to our typical rhythms of work, of play, of, you know, exercise. I mean, you, you started to see, people started to see clearly who they were and what they really believed about God when you know i'm a really people who are super strong parts of their faith communities and then the pandemic restrictions lifted and they were like i can watch this at home i think i'm i think i'm going to do that and i'm not criticizing at all i'm just saying that's a shift and that's a shift in how you belong you know that it doesn't matter i mean you're you belong to god whether you're you know on your couch eating french toast watching church or if you're there in person that's not what I mean. It's that when we interrogate these present tense, small b, small b belongings, we start to learn a lot about ourselves. We learn a lot about what God is doing in us, changing us, shaping us, bringing to bringing to the front like the dark side uh, that we need to reckon with, our shadow side that we need to interrogate and say, you know, is this really in me? And if so, you know, what do I do with that? Hmm. Huh. Huh. Um, that's so good. There's so much I think we could push into there. Like, I appreciate you talk about, I mean, it's very now in that, like the core of what creates stability is owning our belovedness, um, which feels like this, like really simple thing to say that has like a vast ocean (laughs) underneath it of like, what does that actually look like? Right. Sure. Uh, 
Um, but again, I don't want to go through the whole thing. One other area I kind of wanted to um, ask you a bit about or like let you just sort of riff on a bit when you're talking about the section where you take off on uh, Give Us a Stay. Mm-hmm. And you talk about sort of uh, contentment yeah. within that. And one of the things, I was pulling it up in your book here, one of the things that you said that was really um, helpful for me is you said compulsive behavior, not restlessness, is the antithesis of contentment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really interesting to me to think about like the things that I kind of give myself to in those sorts of ways. Like that's that's what's pushing against contentment not the not the restlessness that i feel that like that's not the opposite like that was a helpful sort of framing for me i wonder if you'd just uh you know pontificate on that for a moment <laughs> uh, i love that word <laughs> yeah it, contentment is it was hard to write about because i don't feel like i emulate it at all um i feel like i'm getting there but there are so many aspects of the season of life we're in that changes that. Um, you know, the book is really revolves around the last two or three years, and there have just been some massive changes, some very personal massive changes that I talk about. And all that they've done is created a feeling of, a lot of them, what they've done is created a feeling of insecurity, a feeling that everything could go away tomorrow. And that's always been true of human life. You know, I believe Jesus was, I, what Dallas Willard said, Jesus was the smartest human being that ever lived. And so, you know, the conversations around life is, life is a vapor. Life comes and it Mm. goes. And I think that lesson is something that I've learned as I've crossed 40 and now I'm staring 50 straight in the face. Uh, so I'd love to emulate that idea of contentment. But what compulsive behavior is, in, and I've dealt with that my entire life, so you know, from struggling with pornography for so many years to um, I grew up in southern West Virginia, and like most southern cultures, food has this huge part, and I didn't realize, and this is no one's fault, I'm not blaming any of my relatives for this, but food was more of an event than it was a function of our humanity. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I had over it. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you, food was not so much something you did. It was, you know, sharing a meal is a great concept. But when you when you find yourself eating as a way to process emotion. Oh, okay. So it yeah, wasn't yeah. necessarily a device. It was more of an event. Like this is an event where I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with some things. Um, and that's, Again, like I'm not com- I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying there's a point at which that is you, that is me, more so me expressing my desires. Um, there are things that I want that I cannot have, and so I'm going to search out the easiest thing to fill that spot. And so, if I, as long as I don't think about that, as long as I don't allow the divine to confront me with that. So when I say, give me today the things that I need, I also have to say, I'm taking stuff today because I'm trying to find the things that I need. I'm accumulating, I'm grabbing, I'm stabbing. I, <laughs> I, so here's a story that's not in the book. Uh, I saw my chiropractor recently and I said to her, I said, my, my thumbs are killing me. 
And I said, and I know why, and I don't want to tell you because it's embarrassing, but I picked up this mobile video game during the pandemic and I can't, I can't stop playing it. It's a, it's a Marvel superhero game. And there's just something about the ability to like use my favorite character and punch someone in the face. Mike, I'm 45. I'm 45 years old. And I'm, this is, this is what I'm telling. And I, so I'm like, do I have carpal tunnel? Cause I just don't know if I can live with myself having to have surgery because I got involved yeah, in it. Yeah. So like there's there the compulsions bringing out the desires and contentment is the thing that animates the ability to abide in between. So when I look at Jesus and the story of the wilderness, and I think restlessness is a wilderness place, the thing that allowed him to sit in between what Mark calls the wild beasts and the angels, in between the, the forgotten past and the blessing of tomorrow, the things that allowed him to stay there was this sense that I don't have to grab, I don't have to scrape, I don't have to use any sort of compulsive behaviors to cope with this. I can be here. I can be okay here and know that we're eventually this wilderness will end. And uh, I didn't emulate, I haven't emulated that well for the last two years, but I really want to. Mm. I really do because I don't know. It's uh, really good. I think that's the path forward. It's really good. Um, gosh, uh, there's so many more things we could talk about. We've been at this for a little while. So I would love to like ask you as we kind of close out, I'm really grateful for your time. I'm really grateful for what you've written. And I was kind of thinking as we close out, like you're still engaged with the church, like you, you're creating space for faith to grow and change and expanding and maybe look different than it did in past seasons but you still have some like engagement with the church. And so I'm kind of curious, and this obviously moves us beyond the book, but I'm curious what um, what's giving you hope in the church right now or what's giving you hope for the church right now in the season? Like where, where are you finding hope? Uh, yeah. I think probably first and foremost is that I'm sensing a generation that is that is coming to terms with what the future has to look like. Hmm. Um, there isn't a there isn't a, a plan yet, but there is at least an acknowledgement that contexts have shifted. Um, that we do have to take politics seriously that it is something that affects the church. I think previous generations were more than willing and sometimes for very good reason to say what happens in Washington doesn't affect what happens here. Uh, but the more we take into consideration the plight of black and brown individuals, the things that happen to poor and marginalized countries, the things that are happening to our environment, there is a, there is a sense in which being faithful stewards of our lives, being faithful to loving each other as we love ourselves. There's a whole generation that's figuring out the church is going to have to look different to do that to the level and in the way that it needs to. And I'm, I'm hearing those conversations and I'm seeing them. Um, I'm also seeing an openness uh, to wisdom, which hmm. is really important. I'm seeing 
seeing an openness, not just a knowledge. Like I don't just want to read another book. This coming from a person who's talking about a book they just wrote. But there, there's not just this desire to read another book, but there's a, a very, I think, faithful and authentic sense of I want to learn not just what to do, but how to do it and when to do it. Um, hmm. And not just how to not be wrong or do evil things. I always loved Dallas Willard again once said there's a big difference between something that's simple and something that's stupid. Uh, and that's the difference of wisdom. Like you can do something unwise that isn't a sin necessarily. And I think there's a generation figuring that out. And I think you and I talked about this before we came on. I do think, and I've said this on social medias before, and I, I believe it. It's not just a tagline. Um, the awareness of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation will save the world. This conversation, the practices, the vision is what's going to transform the world. And there are people grabbing a hold of that, uh, realizing that caring for their soul is the best thing they could do for the world rather than, you know, it's not better to burn out than fade away. I'm sorry, Neil Young, it's just not true. And so they're figuring that out and living that way, embodying new rhythms, finding new teachers, you know, Rich Viotis and John Mark Comer come to mind, people who are really speaking well of how do we live into these new rhythms in a way that changes the world. So that's what's, that's what's giving me hope. It's a long way to go. And um, I'm going to stay in this thing as long as I can, keep doing what I can. But there are some generational things that have given me a lot of hope. Hmm. So good. Um, well, Casey, what a gift, what a gift, to get to be with you for a bit today. And your book is such a gift again, friends. It's the gift of restlessness and, uh, pick it up in all the, all the places. And where do, where do folks who want to find you on the internets, where do they find you on the internets? Yeah. So my website is caseytigret.com. Um, that's probably easier to be seen than spelled out loud. So I'm going to let that flow and uh, you can provide that to them. But uh, if you're interested in, in doing any, um, have an opportunity there for a, a soul health assessment, or if you want to do that, uh, we can, we can figure out where you are and where you need to go next. But I'm also on Instagram at uh, Casey Tigret and also Facebook. I don't spend a whole lot of time on Twitter anymore. Uh, but those two places, you can definitely find me there. Awesome. We'll throw up all the links in there. Hey, um, I'm so grateful for you. Thanks for making time today. This was such a gift. I'm grateful for you too, friend. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. <laughs>